0: Welcome to 29th Floor Sunday School. This is a podcast intended to supplement your weekly study of the Come Follow Me curriculum published by the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. I'm host Ben James, and every week I lead you through the lessons in a way that is intended to help you better understand the scriptures, make you think about important questions, and strengthen your faith in Jesus Christ. You can also find the video version of these lessons on my YouTube channel, titled 29th Floor Sunday School. If you find these lessons useful please consider becoming a subscriber. Enjoy the lesson. Hello, welcome to 29th for Sunday School. Glad you can join me as we together study the Come Follow Me lesson for September 7th through 13th. And this week we will be discussing 3rd Nephi chapters 1 through 7. Let me first again by apologizing that this week's lesson is, has been delayed by several days. Uh, I was simply overwhelmed uh, with work and one of the challenges of being in the U.S. for a time while uh, being employed in Hong Kong with a busy job is that uh, often I end up working uh, very late nights as I try to keep up with everything that's going on in Asia from the U.S. And so uh, that resulted last week in kind of a blow up in terms of my schedule and I was not able to get to this Uh, to record this lesson so I uh, apologize for that. Uh, Hopefully uh, the content of the lesson will make up for it and uh, also hopefully we'll be back to a more normal schedule uh, with the next lesson. And with this lesson we will be uh, starting the book of 3rd Nephi uh, obviously, one of the most famous, uh, pop, famous and popular uh, books in the Book of Mormon, because of what comes in next week's lesson, which of course is the uh, the, the coming of Jesus Christ to uh, to the peoples uh, living in America, the the Nephites and the Lamanites. And given the import of next week's lesson, I think that makes this lesson very important as well, because this lesson sets the backdrop, sets the sets the stage for Uh, This most important part of the Book of Mormon. And so with this lesson, hopefully we'll understand a little bit better why uh, the background in this lesson is so important for next week's lesson. Because obviously next week's lesson with the coming of Christ, that is the the pinnacle of the Book of Mormon. That's what we as, uh, when we're missionaries, that's what we try to get people to read and to accept. And to understand is that Christ came uh, to these people. And with this week's lesson, we understand what the people were like, what society was like when Christ came to them. Uh, Last week, we had Samuel the Lamanite prophesying of the birth of Jesus Christ. And this week, we have the time leading up. We we covered the time that includes that birth, but also the time leading up uh, to Christ's coming. And so uh, a lot of critical ideas are are flushed out here uh, that help us prepare For next week's lesson. So, with that, let's go ahead and dive in uh, right now. So, uh, you'll recall in Helaman 16 last week, uh, in verse 13, it talked about in the 90th year of the reign of the judges, uh, there were many uh, what they called great signs given unto the people and wonders as well. So, there's a lot of uh, exciting things going on that uh, for those who have eyes to see, uh, will lead them to a testimony and help to convince them that Christ is actually coming. Well, in verse 4 of uh, verse uh, 3 Nephi chapter 1, then, uh, it tells us there began to be greater signs and greater miracles wrought among the people. So the intensity uh, of these signs is picking up uh, as they get ready for Christ's birth. Uh, but despite these, uh, the the intensity of these signs, their greatness. Uh, let's read verses five and six. But there were some who began to say that the time had passed for the words to be fulfilled, which were spoken by Samuel the Lamanite. And they began to rejoice over their brethren, saying, "Behold, the time is past, and the words of Samuel are not fulfilled. Therefore, your joy and your faith concerning this thing hath been in vain." And so, what exactly is the sign that they are looking for? Uh Well, for that, we go back to uh Helaman chapter 14, and we look at verse 2, uh, where it says, And behold, he said unto them, Behold, I give unto you a sign. For five years more cometh, and behold, then cometh the Son of God to redeem all who shall believe on his name. And then he specified that the time that would come, that there would be a, a night uh, that would not turn dark. You'd have a day and a night and a day. Uh, with continual daylight, and he was specific about when that would come as well. And so uh, there was this is kind of unusual in that you have a specific timeline and a very specific event uh, to look forward to. Um, although the timing itself was obviously not super specific because he said within about five years. And so as this five year period is approaching, you know you can imagine uh, what people were feeling. Um, on on both sides Uh, for those that did not believe as they were getting closer to five years they must have been thinking gosh I really hope this sign doesn't come uh, because I don't believe this stuff and if this sign comes that would be an indication that the beliefs that I've been holding to uh, which are that Samuel is not a prophet and this is not going to happen uh, those beliefs are wrong well on the other side you, uh, you know, people had put their eggs in the Samuel the Lamanite basket, were obviously looking forward to this sign, and hoping that uh, it would come to pass. And and you can imagine being one of those believers, and knowing that you have this timeline there, this five-year timeline, uh, in which Samuel says this amazing thing is going to happen. You know, five years out, you're still pretty excited about it. Four, three, it's starting to get closer, and you're starting to get anxious. Probably two, and you're... Getting a little bit nervous, increasingly nervous, and then, you know, as it comes into the fifth year, you start to think to yourself, okay, is this really, really going to happen? And now let's read verses 7 and 8. And it came to pass that they did make a great uproar throughout the land, and the people who believed began to be very sorrowful, lest by any means that these things which had been spoken might not come to pass but behold, they did watch steadfastly for that day and that night and that day, which should be as one day as if there were no night that they might know that their faith had not been in vain. And I just love how, how raw this is. You know, you can, you can just picture yourself being there at that time. How do you feel within your heart? How, what do you say out loud? Do you admit that you're one of those who believes in Samuel's Prediction and his prophecy, uh, and if you do, is it really what you believe in your heart, or are you one that might say, "Yeah, yes, I believe it. It's going to happen." But in your doubt, you're like, "Gosh, I, I really hope this happens." Um, or are you one that's saying, "You know, no, I don't believe it," but deep inside your heart, you're saying, "Oh, I, I sure would be wonderful if this actually came to pass. If this really were true." And, and you can imagine the. Just the emotions that would come from having such a specific prophecy uh given given a specific timeline as well and and what anxieties that might lead to it 's like this this experiment, this big test this you know this this thing we can look forward to uh this this goalpost that uh, is either going to happen or it 's not going to happen. Uh, we are going to know very soon whether or not Samuel was in fact a prophet of God, whether or not Christ is going to be born at least according to the to the sign that uh, that Samuel the Lamanite has given, we're going to know very soon whether or not that was was legit, or whether uh, Samuel the Lamanite's an impostor, or, or had, had been making predictions that that were not uh, that were not right. And and it, you no, know, it's interesting, and I guess in some ways understandable that those that uh, did not believe it seem to be very heavily invested in the idea that. Uh, they absolutely do not want it to happen and they're getting excited about the idea that it hasn't happened. And you can imagine each, every, each passing day during that fifth year, being a believer and looking up at the sun at night and thinking, you know, is this, actually, is this sun actually going to go down this evening? Is this going to be the night? Is this night ever going to happen? And with each evening in which the sun does go down and it gets dark, you know, how do you react to that? day after day, letdown after letdown, you know, do you hold on to your faith or does that become increasingly hard to do? And sometimes that's what it feels like to be a believer, to believe in things that we cannot see. As we live in a world of those who focus solely on the things that they can see, you know, sometimes it's hard to believe in these things. It's hard to hold out that hope, uh, especially when they're the evidences that we're looking for, whatever they might be, the evidences of our faith. Sometimes they don't seem obvious, and sometimes it takes faith to see those evidences of faith. And to those that lack that faith, it looks like it looks like we're grasping at straws. It looks like we're making things up in order to, to justify the conclusions that we're already predisposed predisposed to to believe in. Um, So, you know, to me as I see this and I think of this story and I think of the emotions that they must be feeling and I think of, you know, my own journey of faith and my own struggles and my own, you know, doubts and concerns and questions that every true believer has. You know, for me this is just so raw and I just love this story. And then the intensity level picks up um, and then They set a date, the non-believers, you know, question what type of government structure must be in place that would allow this type of of, of law to be put in place, but but they set a date and says everyone who does not, who believes at such and such date, as long as this doesn't happen, will be put to death. Then what do you do? Do you hold fast to that belief? Do you admit to those beliefs? Or do you keep it to yourself to protect your life, to protect your family's life, while secretly hoping that it comes true? God, what do you do in this situation? I'm I'm grateful that I'm not them. I hope I'm never in that type of a situation, but I can I see what they're going through, and that again to me that is just so raw because it is, it it makes it should make every one of us who who believes in things that cannot be proven really ask these difficult questions, how strongly do I believe it? What would I do if I was in that position? What is it that I'm looking for? What are the evidences that are sufficient for me to say, you know, I'm good now. I can stop seeking for more signs. I can stop seeking for more evidence. I've got what I've need. And how long can we hold on to those evidences, to those signs, to that faith? Because for me, faith is something that you know, it's like food. We continually need to have these spiritual experiences in order to continually keep our faith strong. Uh, just like the body needs food every day, our, our spirits need these spiritual experiences each and every day uh, to, to feed us and to help us grow and to keep us uh, on that path. And if we go long enough without them, we start to think, oh, you know, maybe there's no there there maybe this isn't real maybe i'm just wasting my time previously um you know this is this story just presents so many so real so raw emotions and and these questions I, I i just think it's so powerful um and so nephi uh knowing that this date has been set nephi uh prays on behalf of the believers and he receives this powerful answer in verses 13 and 14 <laughs> Lift up your head and be of good cheer. For behold, the time is at hand. And on this night shall the sign be given. And on the morrow come I into the world. To show unto the world that I will fulfill all that which have been spoken. Uh, caused to be spoken by the mouth of my holy prophets. Behold, I come unto my own. To fulfill all things which I have made known unto the children of men. From the foundation of the world. And to do the will both of, both of the Father the Father and of the Son, of the Father because of me, and of the Son because of my flesh. And behold, the time is at hand, and this night shall the sign be given. You can imagine what a relief that must have been to Nephi, because he obviously was a believer. He no doubt had put himself out there as one that believed that this sign would come. So his very life was in danger. And uh, he obviously... Cared about other people whose lives were also endangered as well. So this was, this was not an academic exercise for him. This was real. Uh, so to have that confirmation come to him so strongly must have been an unbelievable relief. And then it happens. Uh, and then it happens. And then the sign is fulfilled. The And you can imagine what it must have felt like to be one of those believers who looks at the sky that night, and I'm sure there must have been a lot of sky watching during that fifth year, who looks at the sky at night and sees the sun going down, but it doesn't get dark. And can you imagine the joy and the feelings that they must have felt at that time to know that their faith was not in vain? to know that they had kept the faith and that they were being rewarded for it. And the reward, you know, could they have gone around bragging, saying, ha ha, I believed and it actually happened? They could have. Hopefully they didn't do that, though, because their reward was not that they could brag to others, but they had that inner peace, that confirmation that their faith had not been in vain. That must have been the absolute greatest award that they reward that they could have imagined and imagine being one of those believers who was not brave enough to confess their belief for understandable and justifiable reasons i would say uh, but you know certainly it must have felt like peter when the third denial came out of his mouth and then the savior looked at him uh, there must have been a lot of bitter crying uh, during that night that didn't turn dark um, from those who wanted to believe but didn't have the courage to do so or at least to confess their belief. I'd like to say I, I wouldn't have been one of them, but who knows? I would never judge because I would n- I haven't been in that situation. Uh, but an unbelievably difficult situation and you know, um, unbelievable relief it must have been Uh, for those uh, believers as they looked at the sky and didn't see it getting dark. But then verse 22, And it came to pass that from this time forth there began to be lyings sent forth among the people by Satan, to harden their hearts to the intent that they might not believe in those signs and wonders which they had seen. But notwithstanding these lyings and deceivings, the more part of the people did believe and were converted unto the Lord. Clearly this must have had an enormous impact on them. Um, even those that did not believe, I, there must have been many that were saying, "You know what? There's there's something there now. Yeah, that couldn't have been predicted. Uh, you know, I've lived my life, I've seen a thousand different. I've I've seen it become night thousands of times, and not once has it not gotten dark. But this happened just as would have been predicted. Uh, that's going to be hard to deny. There must be something there. Uh, but Satan still found a way to trick many people." into denying those signs into denying the things uh that they had seen with their own eyes and just he was able to trick them then with something as obvious uh as sun going down and it not getting dark as prophesied five years earlier how much more is he able to deceive people uh with with less obvious events and especially as those who uh for whom we are not eyewitnesses, such as the translation of gold plates into this amazing book, Uh, such as a young boy going into the forest and praying, such as a modern prophet uh, receiving revelation and giving that guidance to the rest of the church. Uh, These these miracles that uh, we're familiar with and that we love and rejoice in, not a surprise that Satan's able to convince people Uh, that these miracles are in some way explainable or simply did not happen because he was able to do so with this sign and he'll always be able to do that. Uh, Therefore, the conclusion is that we probably shouldn't rely on signs for our faith and for our testimony. And this is drawn out in the the next verse, uh, chapter 2, verses 1 through 2. And it came to pass that thus passed away the 90 and 5th year And the people began to forget those signs and wonders which they had heard, and began to be less and less astonished at a sign or a wonder from heaven. And so much that they began to be hard in their hearts and blind in their minds, and began to disbelieve all which they had heard and seen, imagining up vain things in their hearts that it was wrought by men and by the power of the devil to lead away and to deceive the hearts of the people. And thus did Satan get possession of, their heart, of the hearts of the people again, insomuch that he did blind their eyes and lead them away to believe that the doctrine of Christ was a foolish and a vain thing. How sad are those verses! And you know, but but how telling is it then? Again, further confirmation that we should not be basing our testimonies upon outward signs that we see, because those signs are forgettable. Those signs only come every once in a while. And as our memories fade, the, the strength of those experiences also fade. Um, and again, that's why we can't be relying upon occasional uh, sporadic uh, signs or bursts of spirituality. Uh, but if we are going to endure to the end, our spirituality has to be based on uh, frequent, even daily communications with God uh, that become part of our habits that nurture us and us and nourish us uh, on a constant basis with uh, the spiritual food that we need not these sudden bursts of uh, excitement that come from uh, the fulfillment of a sign or some other explainable, unexplainable event that might you know appease us or satisfy us or get us excited for a time uh, but as but as time fades uh, eventually proved to uh, to fade away with time and with those memories uh so we need you know constant nourishment uh, to our souls, otherwise we are subject uh to becoming uh to to losing our faith to losing our testimonies uh just as these people did despite the unbelievable uh experiences that they had and the signs and the wonders that were. Uh, apparently so, so prominent uh, within their society at the time. Uh, so the people um, <clears throat> in Nephite society uh, remain wicked uh, as they reject the signs. The signs had a temporary impact on a number of people, but uh, overall society is not doing well in, in, in terms of its uh, righteousness. Um, and so the and robbers uh, increase in strength. And a war commences between the people and the Gadianton robbers. Um, and we have a series of wars uh, where these Gadianton robbers are frequently attacking uh, the Nephites and making life difficult for them. Um, and, and, so, and with that, uh, we have uh, some verses that I, I want to provide some commentary in before we get into more on these wars. Uh, And that's in verses uh, 14 through 16 in chapter two, where it says, and it came to pass that those Lamanites who had united with the Nephites were numbered among the Nephites and their curse was taken from them and their skin became white like unto the Nephites and their young men and their daughters became exceedingly fair and they were numbered among the Nephites and were called Nephites and thus ended the 13th year. So many Lamanites and Nephites had... uh, bonded together to fight against the Gadianton and robbers. And we see here, it's almost as if there's not Nephites and Lamanites anymore, but they're starting to come together uh, as one society, at least a large number of them. We don't know if there were still a number of Lamanites out there uh, that didn't have anything to do with the wars between the Nephites and the Gadianton robbers. That's certainly possible as well. Uh, but here, Mormon tells us an interesting thing about those Lamanites, at least he records this. That those Lamanites that united with the Nephites, a, he says that their, uh, the curse was taken from them, and their skin became white like unto the Nephites. Um, you know obviously, in modern day and with modern sensitivities about racism, uh, this verse is seen, looks is seen by many to be very, very offensive. Uh, and you know, from my point of view, justifiably so, understandably so. Um, But there's several ways that we could approach this this verse that I want to highlight. Uh, You know first we could say that this is a spiritual notion that Mormon is not speaking literally, and I think there's a lot of things within scriptures, uh, probably most of scriptures, that are not intended to be taken literally. Scriptures are not history books. They're not... uh, The the factual accuracy of what is actually happening in scripture is far less relevant uh, than the underlying story, the, the morality that the scriptures are attempting to teach and attempting to convey. They're not meant to be history books. Obviously, there's a certain amount of history that goes into them, um, but that's not their purpose. And so whether or not this is something that actually happened or whether or not this is Mormon being figurative in his expression and, and using, you know, whiteness as a symbol of purity and goodness and, and, and darkness Uh, as a form of, uh, is synonymous with with wickedness um, and saying that, you know, as they converted, they became increasingly righteous or increasingly good and were increasingly blessed. And as a result, they were were exceedingly uh, fair and beautiful. I I think saying that this is literal is absolutely uh, a a justifiable and a reasonable explanation of these verses. Another possibility is the argument that, you know, Mormon probably was, by our standards, a racist. Uh, To the extent that the Nephites and the Lamanites were actually separated or could be separated based on the color of their skin, which is arguable because, um, you know, after, especially after Christ's visit, they started commingling um, and then eventually they separated into their separate tribes. But at that point, they had been so well commingled that, you know, in Mormon's day was there really you know, a distinction between a dark-skinned Lamanites and a more pale-skinned Nephites? I I think probably not. Um, But if there was, or if this was some figure of speech that they used to describe uh, the two of them, uh, it's understandable why Mormon does not like the Lamanites. It's understandable why Mormon would not have nice things to say about the Lamanites or or those that are associated with darkness or maybe even dark skin. and, And that... You know because he spent his entire life fighting against the Lamanites and those Lamanites eventually take his life and result in the destruction of his people. So if he uh, is if he doesn't like the Lamanites and the Lamanites are associated with being dark-skinned uh, again whether or not that's literal or figurative I, I, I don't know um, but again it's understandable that he doesn't like the Lamanites uh, and so this statement here. Simply meant that as these people, these Lamanites, became more like the Nephites, uh the change was thorough. The change was perhaps even physical. Uh the change was real. And and they became commingled and they became uh as one people. Again, you don't have it's very, very understandable to read this in without uh racist connotations. And you know, I think as members of the church we have to but we have to recognize that the way this is drafted, the way this is written here, is yeah, certainly understandable that people would be upset about it. Um but that's probably not it's certainly not the only way to understand it. And probably given the context that it's it's scripture, uh, you know, Mormon is speaking four hundred years later anyway, or he's recording these things four hundred years after the fact. He certainly wasn't there and he didn't see it happen. He was now, extracting from different records that he had to try to piece together a narrative. Um, you know, it, it's understandable why people might get upset about it, but it's also, uh, in some ways, not going to say silly. But to to be dogmatic and say this is clearly what it literally meant, and therefore uh, the Book of Mormon is a racist text. If you believe in this, you must believe in a racist God. I think is kind of um, kind of ridiculous uh, position to take. Uh, okay, chapter three. Uh, then starts with this interesting epistle uh, that we have from the leader of the Gadiant and robbers, uh, writing to the governor of the land of the Nephites. And just a few things I want to highlight in this uh, epistle, uh, starting with verse 4. And I, and this is the leader of the Gadiant robbers speaking, and I knowing of their unconquerable spirit, having proved them in the field of battle, and knowing of their everlasting hatred towards you because of the many wrongs which ye have done unto them, Therefore, if they should come down against you, they would visit you with utter destruction. Uh, This victim mentality, right? Remember the Lamanites were always saying, you know, we're justified in our hatred against the Nephites because Nephi had wronged Laman and Lemuel so many years ago. Uh, They should have gotten the blessings of being the older brothers because they were, but, you know, Nephi uh, kind of swept in and, you know, tricked Father Lehi into giving them the blessings, and 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 therefore, you know, we're justified in hating in our hatred towards the Nephites. Uh, you know, a ridiculous story, at least from the record that we have, which was written by Nephi. Um, it is not at all accurate, um, but nonetheless they had used this victimhood mentality to convince themselves that they were justified uh, in their hatred and the gadian robbers are adapting the exact same mentality and we need to make sure that we are careful in our lives that we're not assuming ourselves to be victims, uh, to have been harmed by others and therefore us justifying our mistreatment of them uh, so that we don't fall prey to this to these same issues. Uh, but I love in verse 11, uh, the the response of, uh, of Laconius, the Nephite governor, uh, as he said, And now it came to pass that when Laconius received this epistle, he was exceedingly astonished because of the boldness of Gideon demanding the possession of the land of the Nephites and also of threatening the people and avenging the wrongs of those that had received no wrong, save it where they had wronged themselves by dissenting away unto those wicked and abominable robbers. So we get some insights into Laconius' feelings about hearing that the the Gadianton robbers uh, felt that they were a victim. And his response is, are you kidding? What's wrong with you people? You're not victims of anything. The only thing that's been done wrong to you was the the natural result of the wrong decisions that you had made. Uh, What did you expect would happen? And I I think that's the, obviously, as, as we confront and we interact with those that have made wrong decisions, I, I think that's the right mentality to have to them, though we certainly shouldn't express that. But, uh, uh, you know, we should be firm in our, 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 you know, gratitude for the good decisions that we have made and, and not try to uh, cover up or, um, you know, justify the wrong decisions of others. But we should also obviously do that with the spirit of, uh, of charity and love and a desire to, to help. Uh, but, you know, not a surprise that these robbers uh, have to justify their hatred uh, and they and, and they find ways uh, to do so, and then verse seven I think is so interesting, and this is again the uh, the leader of the robbers trying to convince Laconius, the governor uh, of the nephite land uh, to to give up the fight and and to join them essentially, where it says, or in other words, yield yourselves up unto us and unite with us and become acquainted with our secret works." and become our brethren that ye may be like unto us, not our slaves, but our brethren and partners of all our substance. And this is so telling. Um, And this is the exact same trick that Satan uses all the time. He says, you know, what you have now isn't really helping you out. What would be really beneficial to you is if you were to give up what you have now and come and join my team. And you won't be a slave. I promise you won't be a slave. You'll have your freedom. You'll be, you know, you'll you'll be relieved from the burdens that currently uh, keep you down. And then of course you'll enjoy uh, partners of all our substance. These are robbers. The only substance they have is that which they've taken illegally from others. They're not creators. They do not, they don't make anything of their own. They just plunder from others. They have no substance. But their promise, the carrot that they dangle in front of you is, come and you can partake of all that we have. But they don't have anything. And that is the trick that Satan uses to try to convince us to uh, to, to give up our beliefs, to give up our, our standards and our virtues. Saying that those don't mean anything. Come and join with me, you won't be a slave, you'll have your freedom, you'll no longer be bound by these these commandments, by these rules, by these standards that other people have set for you. But you'll have true freedom and you'll be able to enjoy everything that we have, which is nothing. The substance is here. The substance is in the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's where there is true wealth. That's where you can actually find Tangible blessings, uh, both in this life and in the life to come that 's where the promises are real. Everything that Satan promises is a facade; it is fake, there is nothing there. it is substanceless, and his promise to share it with you uh, means absolutely nothing it's like my kids when they ask me if i if, if if they can if try to convince me to do something for them, promise me huge amounts of money. You know, my six-year-old is fond of doing that right now. You know, and it's hilarious because she doesn't have any money. And any money that she has is money that I've given to her uh, for something. Um, so, but, but that's what Satan tries to get us with. And that's what these Anton robbers do. They're robbers. They don't have anything. But yet, they act as if they have everything. And that's that promise of sharing their everything that they have is what often uh, leads people away Fortunately for the Nephites, they have a righteous governor and uh, they make it a point to a, a, to appoint prophets to be their military leaders. And so uh, those leaders of theirs, rather than proactively attacking the Gadianton robbers, they say, you know, let's gather together in one place. Let's Let's put everything together as we spread out. These robbers are able to steal from us and take us out and to murder us. But if we are to gather together, there's safety in numbers, and there's a great lesson for us as the saints there, as those who try to keep the commandments, and that lesson has probably been highlighted to, to I know it has to me, within the past year. Uh, this Sunday, uh, you know, was one of the weeks where we didn't have a sacrament meeting. We get to go about once a month now, and, uh, you know, we tried to do what we could, but, you know, you wake up, you don't go to church, there's no... Nothing to really get you 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 going and get you motivated. And, you know, about three in the afternoon, my wife and I were talking and she was like, wait, is today Sunday? Today's the Sabbath? We it totally slipped our minds because we had, you know, it, it felt like any other day. So there's such power in coming together as a community. And yeah, man, I hope this coronavirus is over soon because I miss going to church every week. I'd love to go for another three-hour block, even though we're down to two now. Uh, but gosh, that would just be so wonderful to be able to be together again, share testimonies again. And I know many of you uh, are longing for that as well. And that's because there is this safety in numbers. And that's why the Nephites are, are pulling themselves together. Uh, they don't want to be spread out because when you're spread out and it's hard to interact with each other, it's easy to be taken out, to be taken advantage of by these robbers. Uh, but they want to gather together because there is safety there. Uh, Verse 25 in chapter 3. And they did fortify themselves against their enemies, and they did dwell in one land and in one body. And they did fear the words which had been spoken by Laconius, insomuch that they did repent of all their sins, and they did put up their prayers unto the Lord their God, that he would deliver them in the time that their enemies should come down against them to battle. So they come together trusting Laconius, and they repent and prepare uh, to confront the Gadianton robbers who have promised to come down and attack them. Moving on then to chapter four, verse five, and here we learn everything we need to know about the robbers. And it came to pass in the 19th year, Gideonhi found that it was expedient that he should go up to battle against the Nephites for there was no way that they could subsist, save it were to plunder and rob and murder. Again, this is the bankrupt ideology Uh, of those who fight against the gospel of Jesus Christ. They have no substance. They have nothing of their own. They don't go out and actually create anything or really benefit uh, society with their uh, bankrupt ideas of atheism. There's no value in that. Their only value comes from taking from others, comes from stealing for others. And that is what they exist to do. Uh, and, and really, I, I, that's what atheism is to me. Um, you know, people have their faith. People have their different religions. N- they're not perfect. They have their faults. They have their stories that are not historically accurate. They have leaders, both current and historical, that are not perfect, that made mistakes. But who cares? That's not the purpose of religion, to create perfect people for us to worship. It's to deepen our relationship with God. And atheism doesn't add anything of value. It only detracts. It only takes away. It only steals from those that once had faith. Just in the same way that the Gadiant and robbers can only subsist by stealing from others. That's what they're designed to do. That is their only way of living. That is all that they can do in order to survive. In my mind, atheism uh, is the same type of mentality. Uh, It doesn't benefit. It only seeks to take away from others. And interestingly, it's these Gadianton robbers and their secret combinations of corruption that we'll see coming out in the next few chapters that ultimately lead to the destruction of Nephite society. It's this idea that I don't need to work. All All I need to do is take from other people that led to the destruction of Nephite society. And I think that's a warning for us in our day, whether in the United States or any other country. That to the extent that, uh, you know, we're creating societies where we encourage people to simply take from others, to plunder from others and not be uh, creatives or uh, uh, productive themselves, we are setting ourselves up for disaster and for a fall. Um, so the uh, so while you have the Gadiant and Robbers who, who do nothing but steal and plunder on the one hand, The Nephites had gathered themselves and were ready. It said that they have seven years in verse four, seven years of substance that they had uh, accumulated within this um, place where they had come together, which I believe happened to be in Zarahemla. Now, from my mind, was that really seven years worth of substance or is, as in a lot of scripture, and again, we talked about how scripture is often not literal. Um, Or is this a symbolism here? Seven, of course, meaning uh, completion or wholeness, you know, a week has seven days to it. That is a complete week, a complete time frame. So seven here uh, very well could have indicated that, not that they exactly had seven years, but they had enough, that they had a complete supply in order to withstand whatever the Gadiant robbers could throw at them. And certainly a big part of that supply must have been the ability to continue to to continue to produce within uh, the place that they came together Um, so the Gideon robbers come down they're gathering together for battle and then the Nephites uh, get ready to meet them and they see the Gideon robbers they've got blood on their face they've got a lambskin upon their loin uh, looking like terrible horrible warriors kind of like your worst nightmare that you might see and this is how the Nephites react in verse 10 but in this thing they were disappointed for the Nephites did not fear them but they did fear their God and did supplicate him for protection. Therefore, when the armies of Gideon, of Gideon high did rush upon them, they were prepared to meet them. Yea, in the strength of the Lord, did they meet them. You know, sometimes our devotion to God is going to be viewed by others as weakness. And that's perfectly fine. We shouldn't be concerned about those uh, with bankrupt uh, views of the world that add nothing of benefit to life. Uh, view us because we know where our true source of strength lies just as the nephites drew their strength from their relationship with their lord in fighting against uh in fighting against the Gadianton robbers so too should our strength be in the lord and so they defeat the robbers uh over time end up killing two of their leaders uh, and they don't forget Uh, that God is the source of the victory verse 33 and their hearts were swollen with joy unto the gushing out of many tears because of the great goodness of God in delivering them out of the hands of their enemies and they knew it was because of their repentance and their humility that they had been delivered from an everlasting destruction so they are successful in defeating the robbers and they know that the Lord had done it I love this idea Hearts were swollen with joy under the gushing out of many tears. They were just so grateful, so happy that they had been delivered, that they had been protected. And they were probably grateful that now they could go back to their normal lives, no longer had to be huddled together. And, you know, that's not dissimilar from how we're going to feel. As we, no, we since right now, we don't uh, confront um, Gideon robbers, we're confronting this virus. And how happy are we all going to feel once it's finally over? We can congregate again together in our churches. All of our kids can go to school for full time. We can go to sporting games. We can all go back to our jobs. We can eat at restaurants. All these wonderful things we used to take for granted. You know, hopefully we'll be, uh, remember to be grateful to God once, um, once this uh, terrible disease has been eradicated or, and, and we can go around uh, back to our normal lives. Uh, verse five, or sorry, chapter five, verses one and three. And now, behold, there was not a living soul among all the people of the Nephites who did doubt in the least the words of all the holy prophets who had spoken, for they knew that it must, that it must needs be that they must be fulfilled. Verse three. Therefore, they did forsake all their sins and their abominations and their whoredoms, and did serve God with all diligence, day and night. And this is all happening in the twenty-first year after uh, after the sign is given. They've stopped marking their time based on uh the beginning of the reign of the judges and now they're marking it on the uh the the birth of christ uh, the the day without or the night without darkness and so this is it's important to keep these uh these years here because mormon goes into great detail to tell us what years uh they are so there must be a reason for that and this is year uh 21 um and in the same year all the robbers that they had taken prisoners they said hey look they they preached to them. And to the extent that the robbers repented, they let them and welcomed them back into society. Uh, so, you know, they were a righteous people. They repented. They trusted and they, they trusted in God. They uh, were grateful for the prophets that they had been blessed with. Uh, and they were forgiving uh, a, a gracious society as well to those who had committed wrong. This is all in year 21. Uh, and then verse uh 12 and 13. Um, so, because pretty soon we're going to see uh, the fall of this society. But before we get some, uh, we get some uh, s- some editorializing by by Mormon here, uh, and that's starting in verses 12 and 13. And behold, I am called Mormon, being called after the land of Mormon, the land in which Alma did establish the church among the people, yea, the first church which was established among them after their transgression. Behold, I am a disciple of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. I have been called of him to declare his word among his people that they might have everlasting life. Uh, And I love, you know, verse 13, everyone loves that. It's, you know, as a missionary, you would always remember that verse. I am a disciple of Jesus Christ. I have been called of him to declare his word among his people that they might have everlasting life. And that has to be our purpose in the missionary work that we do. As disciples of Jesus Christ, we preach to others so that they can have everlasting life. We don't want their money, we don't want their substance. We're not like the robbers that want more substance to try to share with others, or at least promise doing so. We teach about others so that they can come unto Jesus Christ, form relationships with him, and have everlasting life. And on the name Mormon, um, it's interesting as well that he says that he's named after this land, uh, which is interesting, but very appropriate too, because this land is where the Church of God was established. And and the Book of Mormon, Mormon himself, a book that came out of the ground, that came out of the land, was, of course, the instrumental event in helping to establish the Church of Jesus Christ uh, in these latter days. So just as the Land of Mormon was where the Church was established, uh, the record of Mormon uh, was used to establish the Church in these days. So uh, probably not ironic uh, that he uh, has such a name, Uh, Verses 20 and 22, 20 through 22 in chapter five. I am Mormon and a pure descendant of Lehi. I have reason to bless my God and my savior, Jesus Christ, that he brought our fathers out of the land of Jerusalem. And no one knew it, save it were himself and those whom he brought out of that land that he had given me and my people so much knowledge unto the salvation of our souls. Surely he hath blessed the house of Jacob, and hath been merciful unto the seed of Joseph. And insomuch as the children of Lehi have kept his commandments, he hath blessed them, and prospered them according to his word. This is a short summary of the entire Book of Mormon. Mormon says, I've been blessed with this unbelievable knowledge, as have my people, and I want to share this knowledge with you, and this will be a blessing to you if you will follow it. But of course, sometimes it's hard to follow it, and that's what it starts to happen uh, in these next few chapters. Remember in verse in, in the year 21, we just read that the people were all righteous. There were no unbelievers among the Nephites. Everyone believed because the Lord had blessed them and protected them as they defeated the robbers. Well, chapter 6 begins... Uh, And we get this warning in verse five from Mormon. And now there is nothing in all the land to hinder the people from prospering continually, except they should fall into transgression. And how is that exactly the same uh, of our society and our individual lives? If we will keep the commandments, we will be blessed and we will prosper. That doesn't mean we're gonna be rich. That doesn't mean we're gonna have everything that we want. That doesn't mean we won't have people in our lives that take advantage of us. That doesn't mean we will, Mr. or Mrs. Wright will be right waiting for where, where we want us to happen. But we will be blessed with that peace. That same peace, that same joy that those who were looking for the sun to go down without getting dark must have felt the night that that actually happened. That peace, that reassurance, and that that comfort and joy that came to them not just from seeing that it happened but from knowing that they had kept their faith and that their faith had not been in vain that is the peace and that is the prosperity that we can look forward to that success of knowing that we have kept the faith and our faith is not in vain as I think of the promises of prosperity um, I think that certainly must be one of the the top promises the promises that We have kept our faith. We have had the courage and our faith is not in vain. And of course, there's not the only thing that can prevent that from happening at this point is unrighteousness. And of course, that's exactly what happens. Uh, We see in the year 28, uh, they have continual peace. Again, just seven years after, uh, there was not a single unbeliever among them. And then uh, in the 29th year, uh, some people begin to be lifted up in pride because of their riches. And then in the very next year, only two years after they had continual peace because of their righteousness, we get verses 12 through 14. And the people began to be distinguished by ranks according to their riches and their chances for learning. Yea, some were ignorant because of their poverty and others did receive great learning because of their riches. Some were lifted up in pride and others were exceedingly humble. Some did return railing for railing, while others would receive railing and persecution and all manner of afflictions, and would not turn and revile again, but were humble and penitent before God. And thus there became a great inequality in all the land, insomuch that the church began to be broken up, yea, insomuch that in the thirtieth year the church was broken up in all the land, save it were among a few of the Lamanites who were converted unto the true faith, and they would not depart from it, For they were firm and steadfast and immovable, willing with all diligence to keep the commandments of the Lord. So in just two years, they go from peace in the land to wickedness, to fightings. And that seems to be what what caused it. There was pride. They started to distinguish among themselves according to uh, their opportunities for education and according to their wealth. There started to be persecutions among themselves. And when one person felt like someone else was being rude to them, the the other person felt back. They returned railings for railing. And this infighting within the church proved to be its destruction in just two years, which is incredible. We don't know how big the church was. It certainly wasn't 16 million like we have today, probably higher now. Um, But it certainly wasn't a large global institution spread across all countries. We don't know how many people there were, um, but... Within just two years, it could happen in a ward family. It could happen in a stake. It could happen in an area. But this is what happened to the Nephites in just two years. They went from peace and prosperity to to fighting within themselves. And near destruction of the church, the church began to be broken up as people started uh, fighting among themselves. And you also had corruption uh, among their society. Uh, Prophets came preaching of Jesus Christ to the people and those in high positions, uh, shame to say, especially their lawyers, uh, came down upon them and secretly put them to death. And as this was being discovered, uh, they covered up uh, each other's uh, disgusting acts of murder. And as a result, this corruption, these secret combinations um, eventually, you know, penetrated the highest ranks of Nephite society and uh, began to lead to their downfall. And so in chapter, as chapter seven begins, the, the chief judge is murdered and it's impossible to appoint a new one because of the infighting and because of the corruption. So instead of having a new chief judge, they begin to break into their own little tribes, their own little sources of protection. And a lot you could say here, this is certainly not without a <clears throat> parallel, Uh, in modern society I think of you know China the uh, beautiful country that I that's become such an important part of my life Uh, you know after the fall of the Qing Dynasty in 1911 you had a period of, of warlords where not a single person was able to get control over the country so people started breaking off into tribes and Uh, very similar to what was going on in the Book of Mormon. And you would, you know, the the people around you, you'd kind of enter into, you know, social contracts that, you know, I promise not to uh, attack your house and steal your goods if you promise not to do the same for me. And eventually you start to create these little small societies, but it's hard to prosper when you have a group of a bunch of different tribes because... there's no rules governing the interactions among those tribes. And so those interactions take place with great suspicion and you get a lot of inefficiencies in your markets. And as a result, it's very, very difficult uh, for for the people to prosper. And that's what the Nephites uh, were confronting here uh, because of their corruption in high places. Uh, Verses 6 through 8. And the regulations of the government were destroyed because of the secret combination of the friends and kindreds of those who murdered the prophets. And they did cause a great contention in the land, insomuch that the more righteous part of the people had nearly all become wicked. Yea, there were but few righteous um, men among them. And thus six years had not passed away since the more part of the people had turned from their righteousness like the dog to his vomit or like the sow to her wallowing in the mire. Oh, these are sad verses. Six years they went from righteousness to wickedness. And the imagery there, like a dog returning to his vomit is so powerful. There's a reason that the vomit came out of the dog. Because it wasn't sitting well with him. He wasn't able to digest it. His body rejected it. But rather than putting it aside, rather than saying, there's a reason my body rejected it, I don't want to touch it. He returns to it and eats it again. And this is exactly what the Nephites had done. They had defeated the Gadianton robbers. They had defeated these worthless uh, miscreants who were nothing but a drain upon society and then only six years later they're welcoming welcoming them back into society and now they have corruption at the highest levels and their governments have been destroyed. Uh, Truly, truly sad. Uh, But Nephi, uh, who was uh, the son of Nephi, uh, he was a righteous and a powerful prophet um, and it's interesting, it says that he even knew of the ministry of Christ, he had angels come and minister to him, and of course Christ is living on the earth as all of this is happening, and apparently he was able to uh, to see what was going on um, through miraculous visions that he, uh, that he was able to see, and, and so because of that he became a powerful teacher, um, and then verse uh, 17 through 18, and he did minister many things unto them and all of them cannot be written and a part of them would not suffice therefore they are not written in this book and Nephi did minister with power and with great authority and it came to pass that they were angry with him even because he had greater power than they for it were not possible that they could not believe that they could disbelieve his words for so great was his faith on the Lord Jesus Christ that angels did minister unto him daily so the government's upset with Nephi because he has greater power and authority than he, than they do. And his words were so powerful it was impossible to not believe on him. Gosh, sounds like somebody else, somebody who happened to be alive at that time, who preached with power and authority and did great works that caused that made it so it was impossible not to believe in him. And as a result of his power and authority and his great works, he was rejected by the leaders of the society he was in. And that, of course, is Jesus Christ. So I think there's very much a parallel being set up here in the way that these people treat Nephi and the ways that the Jews uh, in Jerusalem uh, treated the Savior when he came to them. It is almost to say, look, don't for a minute think that your society is any better than the Jews. Because the Nephites, they did the exact same thing to someone obviously not as great as the Savior himself, but who in many ways was doing the same things that the Savior was doing, and they rejected him for the exact same reasons that the Jews rejected uh, the Savior himself. Uh, Verse 21, And it came to pass that the thirty and first year did pass away, and there were but few who were converted unto the Lord. But as many as were converted to truly signify unto the people that they had been visited by the power and spirit of God, which was in Jesus Christ in whom they believed. So I love that those that were converted were truly converted. They weren't converted because of the miracles that they saw. They weren't converted because of anything Nephi did. They weren't converted because 31 years ago, there was this amazing story. Uh, you know, many of them who probably were kids at the time uh, about a day and a night and a day that didn't get dark. Uh, They weren't converted because they had defeated the Gadianton robbers. They were converted because of the Holy Ghost, because the Spirit bore testimony to to their soul of the power of Jesus Christ. Verse 24 and 25. Now I would have you to remember also that there were none who were brought unto repentance who were not baptized with water. Therefore, there were ordained of Nephi men unto the ministry that all such as should come unto them, should be baptized with water. And this is a witness and a testimony before God and unto the people that they had repented and received a remission of their sins. Interesting that uh, Mormon here emphasizes uh, baptism because we are about to get Jesus Christ coming and emphasizing the gospel, emphasizing the basics the ordinances of the gospel including baptism but mormon's telling us here just a few years before christ comes there or nephi is already preaching of baptism so clearly a great parallel between nephi and between and the savior himself nephi went out and ordained people to perform these baptisms just as the savior ordained apostles to go out and establish his church So Mormon is setting up this parallel here between Nephi and the Savior, who is uh, in these next chapters, and what we'll be studying next week about to come and visit the Nephites. So, what are some of the takeaways from uh, what we've studied, and how does this help us to prepare for Jesus Christ? Uh, Clearly, one of the powerful lessons of today' messages of today's lessons is that uh, don't assume that just because you're righteous now that you will always be righteous because Satan is able to trick you. Satan's able to convince you that some great miracle um, <clears throat> is no longer real. He's able to convince you to lose your faith. Your faith. There's robbers out there uh, who who preach a gospel that is counter to the gospel of Jesus Christ. Who preach a message that is inconsistent with the gospel of Jesus Christ, and they will slowly steal away your faith if you are not vigilant against them. Now, these Nephites are about to witness the most powerful thing that anyone could ever witness, Jesus Christ himself coming down and ministering to them. And then, of course, the Book of Mormon ends with destruction, because even that was not enough to keep the people in constant remembrance. It was for a time, uh, but it was not uh, it did not keep them in righteousness forever. And so the message to us is, uh, from my point of view, don't take your spirituality for granted. Nurture it, feed it daily. That's great if once in a while you get these unbelievable miracles in your life that you know you you, you can stand up and testify about them in te- fast and testimony meeting, write them down in your journals and keep them in your heart and remember them. That's great and that's wonderful. But that's not where lasting conversion comes from lasting conversion comes from the holy ghost it can only come from the holy ghost and so we have to make sure in our daily lives we are constantly doing things to bring the holy ghost into our lives not relying upon those signs, not relying upon the miracles, not relying upon the great successes in our lives, as wonderful as those things are, and as, as you know as great as, it is, as those things are to you know occasionally provide us that extra boost that we might need for our faith that 's not where the long term peace comes. the long term peace comes from that relationship, that personal relationship with Christ and constant nourishment to our soul from the Holy Ghost. And I hope that we will do that. We will take the time to daily say our prayers, to study the scriptures, uh, to take the sacrament each week, do those primary things so that we can stay firm in our faith. And I do so in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.